1: It's time to reimagine therapy and what it means to be a therapist. We are human beings who can now present ourselves as whole people with authenticity, purpose, and connection, especially now when therapists must develop a personal brand to market their practices. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy, and today we are joined by Dr. Ben Caldwell. He's the author of the book Saving Psychotherapy, and he's also written the basics of California law for MFTs, LCSWs, and LPCCs. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks, Kurt. Good to be with you.
0: We're so excited to have you here. I have a question. Why do you think psychotherapy needs to be saved?
2: That's a great question. And
0: <laughs> to start with I the guess, biggest question I ever.
2: guess we'll dive right in. Um, <laughs> honestly, money. Uh, a lot of it really comes down to money. And I don't mean to be glib or dismissive about all the other sort of big picture healing and spiritual stuff that we do. The fact of the matter is, if this is not a sustainable profession for those who are in it, then we can't do all the good spiritual and healing stuff that we do. From, I think it was 98, 2007, the total amount of money spent in the U.S. on psychotherapy, so all sources, public, private, government insurance, everything, cash pay, the total amount of money that was spent on psychotherapy in the U.S. dropped by about a third, in inflation-adjusted dollars.
0: Oh my goodness. Wow.
2: For the financial crisis that led states to cut millions and millions and millions more from their public mental health budgets. Now, as the economy has sort of come back to life and states have been putting money back into their mental health systems, they really haven't been putting it into psychotherapy. By and large, it's been going to crisis intervention, law enforcement, medication, those kinds of things. So we're really facing a situation as a field right now where it is awfully expensive to become a therapist. And then once you are a therapist, really difficult to remain a therapist and, and to actually make a good solid living responding to what many of us experience as a calling to be helpful to people in communities in need. I'm really gravely concerned that we're becoming
1: a profession by and for the wealthy. So if the costs to enter the field are so high, if it's so expensive to stay in the field as a practitioner, if there's a huge barrier for clients who need the kind of help for the services that we provide, there seems to be a huge advocacy piece that needs to happen. What do you see stepping back that everyday therapists really should do in order to continue to advocate for the profession?
2: Well, I think there are things that that sort of we collectively um, as a field through our professional associations need to do where our associations for understandable reasons haven't acted. Things like working to keep training requirements down and keep them reasonable as opposed to making them more and more strict in ways that don't actually help us to be better therapists. But on an individual level, One of the things that is, I think, most important for us to be doing is to be much more clear with our clients about where we come from in this work, what makes us different from the therapist down the hall or down the street, and actually to be clear about what we do and why we do it. You know, there are a lot of therapists who engage in this form of marketing that I, I sort of joke about as being journey of the rose marketing, where people have on their websites and their business cards and all this stuff that if you come to me as a client, we will walk down a beach full of flowers together and we will all become butterflies, <laughs> together. <laughs> which is lovely, but doesn't tell people anything about what you actually do. Mm-hmm. And there's there's really good evidence that a lot of the reason why people don't go to therapy, even when they have a mental health need, actually amounts to them sort of not trusting and not liking therapists, in many cases for good reason. At the Evolution of Psychotherapy conference, I had the chance to listen to Scott Miller talk a couple of times. Um, uh, I-
1: Scott Miller is a hero of the show, so... <laughs>
2: Listen, he's a a hero of mine. It's it's a well-deserved position for him. He's really the only, I would say, high-level researcher in the field who has actually allowed his career to be governed by the data. He's allowed the data to sort of lead him and his work. And he's the only one talking about these big picture concerns. And he talked about two things at the Evolution Conference that really caught my ear. One was this massive effort in the UK, I think it was in England, but I, I could be corrected on that, to expand access to mental health services. And the services are free, right? Because it's all, it's all public health care there. So it's not like people were facing a financial barrier to services. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars spent on this effort to make mental health services more accessible. And after a year or two, you know, as, as they were kind of reviewing progress to date, the National Health Service found that they actually had done a great deal to improve access to care. But that the proportion of people with mental health needs who are actually seeking out services and obtaining those services, the needle didn't really move on that. And the way that Scott put it in, in kind of this offhand remark was, we can't give this stuff away. The issue is not necessarily access, and and technology has made it easier than ever to access care. Here in the U.S., the essential health care benefits part of Obamacare has made it that millions more people now have health coverage for mental health services, and yet we don't see the proportion of people who are accessing care in a time of need really dramatically shifting. It's not money. It's not really access. It seems to be that people don't like us and don't trust us. The other thing that Dr. Miller mentioned in his talks at evolution that I think is relevant is a study that it hasn't been published yet. So, you know, I, I may need to eat some of my words here, but this was my understanding from, from his talk. It was a study that compared people's experiences when they met with a therapist versus a physician, a medical doctor versus a psychic versus a friend and wanted to know, like, what people were most satisfied with, you know, what, what kinds of consultations on mental health and emotional issues people liked the best. And the highest ratings went to psychics above yeah. therapists uh, and above physicians and above friends. And the, the sort of speculative reason for that seems to be that with a psychic, They will give direct advice, which, of course, many therapists are unwilling to do, without challenging your worldview. For many people, they have the experience going to therapy of paying all this money to somebody who's supposedly an, an expert in behavior change and family functioning and all this, only to ask that therapist, what do you think I should do here? And have the therapist respond back with, well, what do you think you should do here? which of course makes clients want to punch us in the face. And it's hard to (laughs) point (laughs) out. And in the event that we actually do give some more directive kind of guidance, clients often don't know sort of what worldview that's coming from and, and how well it fits with theirs. So this is all a very long way of saying that for us as individual therapists, one of the things that we can do that's going to be really helpful is to help clients know us, like us, and trust us by being a lot more clear than we typically are about what it is that we do, what makes us different from other therapists, and why we're doing it.
1: For people who listen to our other episodes, you know that this is a recurring theme that we've brought up. And especially for me, much like Ben, I I followed the work of Dr. Scott Miller for a very long time. Katie and I were also at the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference. And when we were talking to clinicians from other countries, one of the things that they brought up in talking with us about our approach to therapy is, especially in countries that have nationalized health systems, Australia, UK, things like this, that one of the barriers for therapists is that they're really forced into these evidence-based treatments, these very manualized sort of things that involve them having to be almost completely devoid of personality in order to provide these government-approved protocols of care One of the differences that we have here in the United States is that we have a lot more freedom to bring in this personality and to operate from either a very directive end to having the choice to be a completely blank screen therapist who can sit back and say, well, what do you think that you should do? Did Dr. Miller address kind of that delivery of care sort of thing? Or what's your opinion on this too?
2: Well, he addressed it uh, a little bit. It came up that in in some state systems, I know it's certainly true that in in LA County, if you're working with children in the public mental health system, you have to work from a a sort of checklist of approved evidence-based treatments. And the county has spent actually a ton of money getting its employees trained in these various treatments so that they can work from those manualized kind of approaches. And honestly, the money that the county has spent training people in those approaches as far as I'm concerned, they might as well have burned that money because there's a ton of very good evidence from from a variety of independent researchers that establishes pretty clearly that when a therapist is working from a a manualized empirically supported treatment versus when they are not, that there's no difference in effectiveness. That actually these models, they they get the, the label of being empirically supported or evidence-based because they have a number of independent studies that establish their effectiveness. But we need to be more considerate about what it means to establish their effectiveness because it's, um, it's usually establishing that they are as good as, not necessarily better than, as
1: good as
2: treatment as usual.
1: Thrysler is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thrizer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate upfront. From the client's perspective, Thrizer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thrizer manages the claims end to end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thrizer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thrizer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf.
0: They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thriser.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Well, I think the other piece to that is with these manualized treatments and the ones that we're able to study, they're very behavioral. Mm-hmm. They have to have very specific measurements. And I think there's a lot of things that are more I don't know if philosophical is the right word, but quality of life, when we're really trying to behavioralize it, gets down to some very specific things that may not even be really relevant to some of the clients that we're seeing. And so the treatments that are studied that get these, this evidence-based practice gold star are ones that are able to be quantified in that way. And I, I don't know that that necessarily means that they're a better treatment. It means that it's a more studyable treatment, if that's a word.
2: Oh, absolutely. I'm trying to think of of the best way to say this. So uh, Dr. Miller talked not just in this evolution conference, but also in the last one about how overall as a field, we haven't really gotten any more effective in the past 40, now 50 years. While the work that we do is tremendously effective in general, you know, in other fields, you expect to see gradual improvement over time. You know, medications get more sophisticated, surgical tools and techniques get more refined you would expect therapy to also experience this kind of gradual improvement as we learn more and and hopefully put into place what we are learning. And that really isn't happening. And that seems to be, at least in my view, because we keep trying to build a better mousetrap. We keep thinking that the way to make us more effective is with a different theoretical model, with, with a more manualized treatment that will take the individuality of the therapist almost completely out of it. And so that it'll be the technique that really helps people to get better. And then if we just build a better technique and a better technique and a better technique, that eventually we will be more effective in our work. And we've been chasing that path for decades now, and it has gotten us nowhere. And what we need to be doing instead really is looking not at ways of doing, not at, not at technique, not at different kind of theoretical model, but really at ways of being because we've got great evidence that even using the exact same manualized approach, some therapists are better than others, some have better outcomes than others. So why don't we study what makes those therapists better and actually focus more in in the training process and also in how we implement various treatment, focus more on therapist way of being, because that seems to have so much more of an impact on clinical outcome than the particular model that somebody's using, or whether they're working from a checklist over here of the the eight treatments that you're allowed to use.
1: And so historically, it seems that at least here in American treatment, and I'm guessing in other countries that have these nationalized health systems, that the therapeutic move into the medical model has shifted us away from the philosophical model of what therapists can and are able to do. Now, Ben's other widely known area of expertise is, at least in California, is the legal and ethical ends of being a therapist. And he has a widely popular book that's used by a number of different schools. He's taught at schools himself in these classes. How do we balance out our legal and ethical responsibilities while fully embracing what you're talking about as far as bringing out the aspect of the therapist?
2: That's a big question. I want to parse out, though, a couple of things that I think are meaningfully different, because there's what your workplace expects you to do. And uh, to that end, there are plenty of workplaces that are implementing evidence-based treatments in various forms that might be requiring you to work from from a checklist. But you don't have any kind of legal or ethical responsibility to work from a checklist of approved treatments. Your ethical responsibilities are to monitor your effectiveness as a professional, to only continue working with the client for as long as you reasonably believe that you're going to have a positive impact on them, to only use treatments that, you, that, that have some kind of established base to them. You have reason to believe they're going to work that, that aren't, you know, way, way out of the mainstream. These are all things that you can do, responsibilities that you can meet without having to fit your practice into a checklist. There is a small but growing body of data that that is directly related to therapist way of being and that we can improve by doing things like deliberate practice. And if you let that thread of research guide your work, really hard to argue that you are violating some kind of legal or ethical standard, even if what you're doing winds up looking pretty different from what the sort of more automaton therapists are doing.
0: I think that's so important because the way of being of a therapist, the way that we come into the room has such a huge impact. And I know when I was in school a million years ago, it was really the the only proven thing that's shown to have an impact is the therapeutic relationship. Like that's the most important thing. And so being present, being the best version of yourself, like that's so important. And, and kind of circling back to what you were saying before, if it's... The therapist way of being, or we we don't want to build a better mousetrap. We need to build a better therapist. If that's the most important thing, the sustainability of the career again becomes so critical. Because if people are burning out, if they're not able to make enough money, if they have to work extra jobs, if they're doing all these things, being present and being the best version of themselves in the room becomes so difficult. And I don't know that you have an answer, but I'm just curious what you what your thoughts are and how we we do the holistic approach to allowing therapists to be better whole people because we can't be great in the room therapists if we're constantly under huge financial stress and we have a million clients and we're burned out and our boundaries start slipping and, you know, we, like, it just becomes impossible. And so it feels like, It feels kind of hopeless.
2: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, and I I don't mind saying that I I left the Evolution Conference in this kind of very jarred and and a little bit nihilistic kind of place of what are we doing? Like, do we all need to go and become coaches or something instead and, and really blow up the traditional counselor and therapist way of working? Because there are some significant systemic problems along the lines of what you're talking about. But there are some things that we can do on an individual level, regardless of your sort of stage in your career, to push back a little bit. And so if you are just starting out, if you're coming into the profession, there is this notion of engaging in deliberate practice, really making time, forcing it into your schedule that is time for deep reflection on what it is that you're doing with your cases, what seems to be working and not working, and what kinds of changes you'd like to make. Of course, many of us think about our cases when we're not at work, but that in and of itself isn't deliberate practice. This is, this is a more focused approach to thinking about our work when we are not actually doing the work. So that's any career stage, really. If you're working with clients, you can engage in deliberate practice. That makes us better at what we do. It tends to make us more effective, and it also can push back against burnout. If you are a supervisor or an administrator, then there are things that you can do in your workplace to help your employees to not burn out. And one of the things that you can do is to implement, and in a forceful way, in a way that really demands it, a culture of accountability, In your workplace that gathers data but uses it appropriately and that allows time again for deliberate practice and and deep reflection on cases if you're working in a setting where you're there 40 hours a week and of those 40 hours you're in supervision or case conference you know five hours and you're otherwise seeing clients for 30 or 35 hours yeah you're gonna burn out of course because you don't even really have time to think about what it is that you're doing. And there is strong evidence that if you forcibly build in that time of not seeing clients, that your outcomes will improve. If you're using that time for deliberate practice and not sort of just other rote administrative tasks. And then of course, if you go even higher than that onto like administrative and policy levels, yeah, we really shouldn't be designing systems of care that require therapists to do either so much back-to-back client care or so much duplicative and unnecessary paperwork that it takes them away from the core of what we do. There was a bill here in California a couple of years ago that aimed to reduce the workload burdens that people experience in public mental health. Uh, The bill, unfortunately, didn't make it all the way through the legislative process, but it was at least an indication that some people in the legislature were getting the message that our mental health systems of care, especially our public mental health systems of care, are not kind to the people working within them, that we actually lose a lot of people, especially in between graduation and licensure, not because they're bad therapists, but because either they burn out on the work or because it's just too difficult financially to make it through those years.
1: Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered.
0: Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free.
1: It seems like, at least at an administrative level, that a lot of these decisions about how therapists should practice, especially on the public mental health side of things, are decisions that are being made by people who aren't trained as therapists. And I would venture to guess that, much like the program that I went to, didn't have a lot of emphasis on program administration, didn't have a lot of emphasis on advocacy. And I understand that some of these classes are now part of the curriculum, These decisions are being made by people with MBAs they are being made by people with administrative knowledge, but not the practice knowledge that we have. How can therapists get a better sense of this training, a better sense of program administration to better be able to effectively make these deliberate changes that you're talking about?
2: Well, two things, I guess. One is sort of reading up and allowing yourself to sort of work your way up within an organization where you work. I know a lot of people, especially on the public mental health side, who got in as clinicians and and really actively fought against becoming administrators, partly for the reasons that you're talking about. They they didn't feel like they had the training or experience to take on an administrative role. Um, They really enjoyed clinical work. And they were sort of underconfident as administrators. And those are all things that make sense to me, but the impact of that is that then we have far fewer therapists in important decision-making roles. But the other thing, regardless of, of whether you want to take on more of an administrative position or not, we need to do a much better job of pushing back when some of those changes are proposed, I mean that's the ideal stage to do it, or even after they've been implemented if we're seeing negative impacts of them. Therapists are notoriously conflict averse. (laughs) Um, So we don't have as much of a voice in the advocacy world as we really should. Um, We haven't made the kinds of uh, big picture advocacy gains in the past few years that I, I wish that we would have. We often are unwilling to go to bat even for the things that we claim to care deeply about. We are unwilling to have the fights that we often need to have to make our workplaces more survivable. And I and my colleagues who, who engage in advocacy work, we do as much as we can on that end. But the fact of the matter is, you know, we could break our backs for years and the impact that we have is gonna be limited unless there are more therapists and counselors who are willing to step up and engage in these, these same kinds of fights on a big picture level in terms of you know, state and county systems, but also on a, on a much smaller scale within individual workplaces. We need people who are willing to go to their bosses and say, hey, this isn't right. This thing that you are asking us to do as employees, it's too much. Let me find and show you the research that suggests that this actually is not going to help outcomes and it's going to burn us out far fewer therapists than we need are engaging in those kinds of fights.
0: I think it's hard. Having been a, an administrator in public mental health, I know that there was a lot of stuff that I felt ill-equipped to handle, but I also know there was a lot of pushback when I was trying to make those types of changes within the workplace. There's so much money pressure, and I think, in truth, there's a lot of people within Agencies who all the way to the top are therapists and may not have any kind of administrative experience. I've happened to have some really great bosses who were were wonderful CEOs and you know, vice presidents of programs and stuff like that. And I've had people who were kind of a mess. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of piece where it's just this fear about money. The question that I had was, you know, when when we're trying to frame this deliberate practice, when we're trying to frame how we make our outcomes better. I kept thinking, but what's the financial burden on that? Because in truth, if we can get better outcomes, I think there's ways that we can show the larger system that we're going to bill more effectively. We're going to have better productivity because the clients will show up if they're getting better treatment. I mean, I think there's ways to show that this deliberate practice can work. But mm-hmm. I was even just thinking about, okay, so where does that fit in? Because even in the place where I was working, we had a productivity standard where I think we, they had to bill 26 hours or 28 hours And we were trying to get them to bill 18 of them as face-to-face time. So, yeah. you know, there was only 18 hours with clients, the rest was paperwork or driving to appointments.
2: Mm-hmm. And then,
0: then after that, it was people just running around, you know, with stuff that ended up being unbillable activities. So it wasn't deliberate practice. It was going to somebody's home. Nobody was there. I can't bill anything. Now I have to hightail it over to somebody else's house to be able to bill something else. And so I think trying to get our head around this deliberate practice idea and about changing these workplaces, I think for me, what I ended up doing was trying to figure out how can I make Make this seem more financially beneficial. And I argued for more administrative staff, you know, because I had I had clinicians who were faxing things. So it was like, if we can get them billing and seeing clients and doing these things, it was much better in finding ways. How do we get more of this deliberate clinical practice in a billable setting? It's really tough. And I think it's, it's something that's very nuanced. And I feel like that potentially there's a need here to really change people who are willing to be advocates people who are willing to be administrators on how to bring this clinical efficacy in with this huge burden from the state from from the federal government to to manage to these evidence-based practices, to these tight budgets that keep getting tighter. And it's it's something where it's it can feel pretty daunting. So I can understand how people may not want to step into it. Of course, I love leadership. So I was like, I'm gonna do this thing, I gotta figure this out. But it, it was definitely something where I got a lot of pushback, even in trying to do small changes to make a more productive work environment.
2: Well and you're not alone in that by any means. I think a lot of people who are, who have been in administrative positions like that can yeah uh, can can speak equally eloquently about the, the same kinds of struggles that they've experienced in, in different ways. It's certainly true that wheels of change turn slowly in larger mental health care systems, but it's also true that they do turn. And when administrators have these experiences of, of getting pushback and experiencing pressure financially and also from from their bosses, there is a tendency, and Katie, I know you well enough to know that you don't fall into this, but I think a lot of <laughs> Too. There is a tendency to just kind of throw up your hands and assume that the, the pressures that come down on us are sort of writ from on high and are therefore unchangeable, in much the way that people often look at the licensing rules in, in their particular state. The reality is, though, that in either context, whether it's sort of administration of a large healthcare system or whether you're talking about licensing rules, these are rules that are written by people that change over time and that we can and should have a very active hand in changing. And we need to fight for a place at that table. In my own advocacy work in here in California, we've been able to get some meaningful things done where it actually surprised me how easy the process was of creating change. And, you know, I had people who had been sort of in my ear complaining about stuff for years, that we were able to get changed through, like, a quick proposal and a couple of licensing board meetings. And then there's a legislative process, but that process was actually smooth and easy. Now, of course, it's not always going to be that way. And of course, it's not always going to be that way in a big like healthcare bureaucracy. But people who are in positions of power in various ways, even if it's middle management, often don't experience themselves as being very powerful and don't recognize actually how influential they can be. It does require, like I said, engaging in some fights, which therapists are notoriously unwilling to do. Uh, And it does require some leadership. And to that end, I love that we're seeing kind of this growth in leadership training among therapists and in in our professional world. I think we need more people who are leaders who are willing to go to bat. All these rules are changeable. And for me as a family therapist, part of how I got into doing advocacy was because I was trained in family therapy as the family therapy is a process of understanding the rules and roles that govern a human system. Well, policy advocacy is just the same thing on kind of a, a, an administrative level. It's understanding the rules and roles that govern, you know, in our case, licensure, or whatever else is being governed by those, by those rules. So whether in therapy or in advocacy, I feel like my job is to understand the complexity of the system to find the appropriate levers of change and to change the rules that need to be changed so that we all can function more effectively within that system. In that sense, I actually feel like a lot of my advocacy work is just using my therapy training on a different scale.
0: We could talk forever, but we need to to wrap up. But I think the thing that I'm really hearing from you, Ben, is that we need to step outside, think really critically about the profession, about the things that we're taking as status quo, as this is what it has to be, to really step back and think critically and is this actually working? Is this the way that we want to practice? Is this something that makes sense? How can we be better therapists? How can we be deliberate in our practice and make sure that what we bring to the room is relevant and valuable and, and effective for clients? And if it's not, if what what's being given to us, whether it's the licensing codes or, or workplace dynamics or whatever, if those things don't make sense, be responsible, stick to the professional codes, but take a stance and 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 start some advocacy to really move things forward because the wheels of change do do move. <laughs> and that was the hope that I was taking, which I, I like. So that's that's what I'm taking from this, and I really appreciate your your wisdom. I'm. I'm excited that we were able to talk about this because there's so much more we could talk about, but this was, I think, a a good beginning to our, our conversations with you, Ben.
2: Well, thank you both. I really appreciate being here. And and these are fantastic questions and important topics. And I guess the the one thing I would want to sort of close out with is, uh, for your listeners, whether you are in your your very first day of graduate school, or even before that, or whether you are a seasoned professional who's been been around, who's seen things for for decades, and (laughs) might even be a little bit jaded about the professional world, regardless of where you are in your career, you have more power than you think you do you can have an impact on the things in the field that you don't think are working well, that you don't think are serving you. You can have an impact on that tomorrow if you want to.
1: Ben Caldwell is the author of Saving Psychotherapy. His business is Ben Caldwell Labs. He does a number of other things. He has a blog. Where can people find you online?
2: So bencalgwelllabs.com is where people can get the uh, books, license exam prep, saving psychotherapy. I've uh, got a few CE courses up there. We also just did a copy and paste professional will and a copy and paste social media policy for people who are wanting to update their paperwork for 2018. And for the blog, you can go to psychotherapynotes.com. We've got, I think now more than 200 articles there about current issues in the profession. That's all free. Uh, that's all readily accessible, searchable, all that good stuff.
1: And we'll include links to all of that in our show notes. So please check those out as well as on our website, mtsgpodcast.com. Check us out on social media. Leave hashtag modern therapist problems with things that you run into that we might be able to turn into a future episode. And look forward to our Therapy Reimagined conference in October of 2018 here in the Los Angeles area where Ben will actually be one of the featured speakers. So we're very glad to have him here with us today and very excited to have him as a part of our conference coming up. I'm and excited about that too. I'm, I'm
2: really looking forward to that conference. I think you guys are putting together something that is really unique and valuable and I can't wait.
1: And so until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy and Dr. Ben Caldwell. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thrizer. They are passionate about making out of network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists. And receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions.
0: Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months.